0: All right, friends, if you would please grab a Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. By now, many of you know Dr. John L. Cox very well. <laughs> we spent a weekend together, and uh, we had a great time at the Double Tree, and uh, it was just a fantastic event. A huge shout-out and thanks to Bonnie Mitchell, who helped uh, plan all the logistics. She did a fantastic job. Uh, John is going to preach for us this morning. And John is um, uh, a native son of Jackson, Mississippi. He has been in uh, a private clinical practice for uh, nearly 30 years at Live Oak Psychological Associates in Jackson. Uh, He has been married for 35 years to his beloved bride, Norma. Uh, They have three adult uh, daughters. And uh, John um, is, um, not only is he a gifted communicator, not only is he incredibly perceptive about the nature of the human heart, um, but he gets to share his gift of preaching with us this morning. Uh, John is, uh, when he's not uh, doing conferences or, or, uh, you know, spending time with his clients or with his family, you'll probably find him on a body of water windsurfing. And uh, he loves uh, sailing and he also, he loves to cook. So, uh, John, would you please uh, come this morning and let us... uh, um, um, uh, Hear God's word as as he uses you. I'm going to read the passage from which John's going to preach in Genesis chapter 3, and then Dr. Cox will come. So would you stand, if you're willing and able, for the reading of God's word. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But God's word, God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks to, be God. to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Is
1: my volume right? Do you like that? All right, good. I'm glad to be back with y'all. I see so many familiar faces. Um, those of you who attended the conference, you have got to be sick of listening to me talk by now. Uh been known to happen a, a woman told me she had been listening to some of my stuff in her car she'd like gotten some you know stuff off my website or whatever and had been listening to me for a few days driving carpool and whatnot and finally her little girl in the back seat pipes up and says mommy i'm tired of listening to the ma- to that man talk does he sing <laughs> the good news is no he does not <clears throat> it's good news for y'all I'm really honored to get to speak to you in a very different capacity here this morning, and I'm um, grateful and honored to uh, Blake and to the session for giving me this trust. Um, psychology is my job. Um, our Lord is my heart. And this is my favorite thing to talk about is him. Um, our conference was all about the dynamics of loving well and relating well in marriage and dating uh kind of practical psychology so to speak when i'm given the opportunity to preach though i don't do psychology from the pulpit it's kind of a policy of mine what i want to do is worship with you um i have a really simple and different goal here this morning than we've had this weekend there's this passage in uh john 12 where these greeks come to the disciples and in essence say sir We want to see Jesus, and that's my goal this morning. uh, This sermon's not going to be heavy on application. You know, here's five points to take with you uh, to go do differently. I want to give you five points to know your God better. Uh, My goal is to pull back the veil a little bit this morning and show you your God, what He is like, how He loves you how wonderful he is and i'm going to leave it to his spirit to work in your own heart toward application of that i want to show you his heart for you any of you here who do not know him you have some gut sense of what god is like right what you imagine that he's like i want to talk to you some this morning about uh, what he tells us he is like in his word and those of you who do know him I want to remind you of his heart for you, all right? We're going to do that simply by telling you a story about him. Uh, when I preach, I don't do, you know, heavy theology. I basically tell Bible stories. I haven't moved very far beyond that, you know, felt Sunday felt board Sunday school lessons. You Remember those? You know, why would you move beyond that? I mean, those were, those were awesome, right, you know? Uh, I want to tell you a story about how he has gone about saving us. Basically, uh, the Bible is lots of stories that are really one story. uh, We call it the covenant of grace, the story of how God unfolded his plan to bring us back to him. Um, And we're going to look at one of those stories this morning. The other highlights in those stories, you know, Um, the story of Noah, a amazing intervention by God to start to save us with Abraham Isaac Jacob Moses the law you see the high points of this story God is unfolding all the way to Christ we're gonna we're gonna we're going to tell the story this morning in a sense the first story this morning in a sense we're going to tell the backstory you like those backstory movies you know like how Bruce Wayne became Batman you know this is the ultimate backstory. I'm going to tell you the story this morning of how God responded when Adam and Eve sinned, how He responded to the fall to reach for us. It's the first story in His plan to save us. Worship with me. You all know how the story begins. God makes this perfect world for His children, and it involves blessing, and it involves rest. It involves meaningful, productive work. As we said in the conference, it involved deep, intimate relationship and connection. And it involved provision for the deepest needs of his creatures. All right? Only catch was this. In order to be such a blessed creature, you had to stay a creature. All right? Going too fast for anybody? In other words, creatures don't make the rules. Creatures don't take what they want. Creatures don't get to sit in the big chair, all right? They're creatures, not God, all right? They're under him, and he's over them, all right? That's what the tree meant. The tree in the garden, in essence, said, all of these trees are for you, but this one you cannot touch, this, this one you cannot go, or you will die if you go here. I am God, and I say no. And the tree in essence said, if you wait upon God, if you're a creature and honor him, he will provide himself, his heart, and everything you possibly need. If you take, if you move out of being one of his creatures who's under him, if you take matters into your own hands, you will lose him and everything else. So you all know what happens next, right? Along came a spider and sat down beside her. And into the story comes our old buddy, the serpent. And his message is quite the opposite of God's message. If God's message is, wait on me, trust in me, and I will provide for you, what's Satan's message? It's just the opposite. It's, if you wait on God, you're going to go without. You trust him? Mm Mm-mm. You need to take. You need to take, because if you wait on him, he will never come through for you. And Adam and Eve fall for this, like we all do every time we sin. We say, God, your way is not the one I want. I'm going to take my own way. And they break the covenant of creation, and they violate this way God had, this place God had. I will be your God and take care of you. And they betray him. All right, so this is cosmic treason, boys and girls, okay? And even though there's only one commandment for them, not even ten like us, it's a capital crime, and the sentence is death, and the world hangs in the balance at this point. What's going to happen? Well, I want to look at the story from a little bit different perspective than it's usually looked at. Usually when people speak on this story, they talk a lot about all the nasty stuff that's about to happen. Because of the sin, you know, and there's some pretty nasty stuff that's about to unfold. There's gonna be curses. Uh, man is cursed at the level of his work. It's gonna be futile and difficult. Worse, he's gonna die. Woman is gonna get hit at the level of her relationships with her husband, with her children. And to top it all off, they're, they're all under the eternal condemnation of God, all right? curses all right all part of that death that god promised would happen if they pulled away from him but i think we know a lot about all of that right sin and death and curses i mean we're presbyterians you know we talk about that stuff all the time right so what i want to do this morning is something a little bit different i want to yeah there are curses and condemnations and all of that that are part of the story but also In Genesis 3, as regards our focus this morning, the heart of God for you, we're going to see some of those most marvelous and loving things that God ever does. So, this morning, I want to talk about the good things that happen after the fall. And that's not because I'm like, you know, a naive optimist or something, but because this encounter between Adam and Eve and God is packed with loving covenant blessings to them And to us, we're going to see here this morning the beginning rumors of our salvation, how God is going to respond to all of this death and all of this separation and all of this fear by bringing life. I want to look at five ways in which he's going to bless us here, bless them and us. Number one, you've just heard the passage, what's the first thing that God does after his people? break off their relationship with him. What's his first response? He looks for them. Maybe the sweetest words in all of Scripture, Genesis 3, 9. Where are you? I mean, here's God, right? He's the injured party, right? Now, I don't know about you, but when someone hurts me, No, 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 no! It's not moi's job to come back and ask to talk. You know. What do we do? Think about it. You have a group of friends, and every summer y'all go to the cabin at the lake together for vacation. Only this year you don't hear from them. Instead, you start seeing like Instagram pictures of them, like you know, having a great time at the at the at the lake without you. And it doesn't say wish you were here. What do you do? How do you feel? Do you go up there to the cabin and knock on the door and say, hey, guys, what happened? Where are y'all? I want to be a part of this. No, we write them off. The next time we see them, we're like, oh, hey, you know. But what does God do? Here he is, and all he has done is create a very good place for his children, and they immediately betray him. But instead of blowing up the world, which would be his right, he looks for them. He seeks them. Where are you? And you can read him doing this all through Scripture, all through the whole story of the covenant of grace. Read the prophets. He's this aggressive, pursuing husband and lover, seeking his bride, wounded by her infidelity to him. When he says in the prophets, you honor me with lip service, but your hearts are far from me. That's not just a statement of judgment. It's a statement of sorrow. I want your hearts. Not a bunch of religious talk. Your hearts are far from me. The most natural thing in the world about being a human is when we are hurt, we want to withdraw. We want to hurt back. We talked about this in the marriage conference. We want to get even. We want to shut down. God does not do this. He looks for us. Now, Adam's answer to his question, where are you, does not offer us a lot of encouragement here. God says, where are you? And Adam says, "Uh, I heard the sound of you in the garden, which must be an interesting sound. But I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. So Adam says he's afraid. All of a sudden, he realizes his vulnerability and his nakedness. To put it in psychological terms, he feels shame. No longer naked and not ashamed anymore, conference goers. We talked about this. Now, God knew that in their created condition, they could not feel self-condemning. And that they could not know fear and shame unless something had happened. I mean, after all, think about it. If you don't have the knowledge of good and evil, you can't judge, right? You can't judge you or anybody else, right? I mean, I think that if you asked Adam, it, is, is he before the fall? If you had asked Adam, is Eve a good wife? Adam would have gone, mm mm-hmm. I'm not sure what you mean she's eve i love her i tell you what god is always calling things good and not good or very good he's the righteous judge and he comes around in the cool of the day to walk with us why don't you ask him because he is the only righteous judge not us do you see the the realistic problem with the tree Not just the obedience problem. Sometimes we make this stuff too religious. Um, The ability to be aware of good and evil, the ability to judge, is something God wanted to protect us from. He knew it would kill us to have it. Does it not kill you? To live constantly aware of, am I doing good enough? Is my spouse good enough? Is so and so good enough? And we live in shame now. God knew it would kill us. That's why he made such a big deal about it. So anyway, if they're judging and feeling shame and hiding, God knows something is wrong, all right? Houston, we've got a problem. So God asked them, who told you you were naked? In other words, how did you learn about your vulnerability and shame unless you learned about condemnation and judgment from the tree? And Adam does what any self-respecting husband would do. He blames his wife, right? As we talked about in the conference, he actually blames God and Eve in one sentence. The woman who you gave to me, which we said in the conference, is actually pretty good for your first day as a sinner, if you think about it. You know, he's really knocking this out. All right, and Eve blames the snake, and ironically, Satan is the only person here who takes it like a man and doesn't blame anybody. And God begins his curses and maledictions on the serpent. Now, a, a pretty huge cosmic shift took place about 10 verses earlier in this passage when they sinned. But I believe that this interaction that's about to take place between God and Satan is likewise almost just as great because the very words that god is going to use to bring curse are also going to be the very words that are going to inaugurate our redemption in fact this curse that we're about to reread is so important that theologians have given it a name you know how theologians like to name things Anyway, this curse is called the Proto-Evangelion, all right? When I was like a 23-year-old kid in seminary, I always thought Proto-Evangelion, I always thought it sounded like some sort of a death ray in like a cheesy science fiction movie, like prepare to fire the Proto-Evangelion, you know, like that. But actually, think about it. Root word proto, what's a prototype of something? This is the first version of the Evangelion, of the gospel, my friends, our God is such that his first blush upon at first engaging our sin is that he's already working on a prototype of the rescue plan. And it's just a teaser now, like those teaser movie trailers, but the proto-evangelion, the first rumor of our salvation, and it's Genesis 3.15. Let's read it again. God says to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, your offspring, depending on your translation, between your seed and her seed. He shall crush you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. There it is, the whole redemptive universe in four lines. Let's unpack it, and we're going to look next at our second post-fall blessing. He looks for us. What's the next thing he says he's going to do? What's his first promise slash curse in the proto-evangelion he says i will put enmity now what does that mean why is that important why is that a blessing and why does enmity need to be put well think about it as the story currently stands what's the current status relational status Of the relationship between the woman and the serpent if you got God's way over here and you have Satan's way over here who is the woman and her offspring with see at this point in history Eve and all her children are cosmic traitors remember we're like friends of the serpent we're buddies we're simpatico we've chosen sides we're the bad guys we're on his team were his but God does this wonderful thing he gives this wonderful gift he declares that he will initiate a change in relational status between his people and the serpent he declares that there will no longer be friendship between the woman and her seed and the serpent there will be enmity Hatred, deep-seated ill will, and not only enmity, there'll be an enmity that is present by the very act and design of God himself. He is saying, I will put enmity. He is saying, you can't have them, they're mine. What an act of grace and love from him. He says, I will personally destroy I'm going to get involved in this story with you. I will personally destroy your affection for the evil one. Don't you experience this, Christian? Don't you, have, don't you hate your sin? Don't you have areas in your life where you struggle with sin and you hate it? And you fight that you're so controlled by it, you wish it wasn't the case? You feel in bondage to it? Well, this passage says if that is true of you, take heart. This passage says that if you have that Romans 7 sense of your sin, the very thing I wish I do, I do not do. In fact, I do the very thing I, what? Hate. Get it. God is saying I am at work. My spirit is at work in your heart, pouring enmity on that sin. I'm so glad you hate it. He gave that to you. He is at work in you to bring him, you, you back to him. And I believe if he hadn't have done that, this story would end it right here. Because we'd still be hanging out with our old buddy, the serpent. Dude, what's up. That's where we would live. This is earliest sign of God's act of regeneration in our hearts, all right? Blessing number two. Now, how's he going to pull this whole changing loyalties thing off? And that'll be our third blessing. Well, next in the proto-evangelion, we actually get a plan of redemption unfolded, sort of how it's going to work. I was an English major in addition to psychology, which is fortunate because there's a sense in which, right here in this passage, our eternal salvation begins with simple grammar. Let me explain. When he starts the Proto-Evangelion, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, offspring, and hers. And when he says this, he's talking about plural groups. He's talking about the people of her seed, the people of the woman, and the people of Satan's seed. But then, in the next part of the verse, the antecedent of the term seed changes number, From plural to singular and hope dawns again on planet earth the next line is the seed no longer refers to a group it refers to an individual he will crush you on the head you will bruise him on the heel and god is saying that in order for the the woman and her seed plural us raise your hand to be saved that a seed singular is going to come an offspring singular is going to come. A one who will come and do battle with the serpent. And the serpent will wound him. But the seed of the woman, the individual, will crush the serpent. Get it? In other words, this is the pre-evangelism. Three chapters into the Bible, God's already promised in a redeemer. Somebody to destroy the destroyer. Christ, already promised five pages in. If you keep reading Genesis, by the way, you will see great figures of the Bible looking anxiously for this one. Um, poignantly, Eve looks for him. Uh, her third son, Seth, she wonders aloud if he is perhaps that offspring, same word used, who, will, um, who God has promised. Um, a few chapters later, Noah's dad uh, wonders if Noah will be the one who will bring rest from the curse. In fact, the name Noah means rest. These guys were, took this promise seriously that the seed would come, and they were looking for him. All right, so he looks for us. He puts enmity. He promises a Savior. Two more unbelievable gifts to come. Number four, remember the first result of the fall? The first thing Adam and Eve felt? After they sinned? That shame, that humiliating self consciousness, that desire to hide. It was no longer safe to be naked and not ashamed anymore. As a direct consequence of eating of the tree, they wanted to hide. They felt exposed and humiliated and ashamed. So, what did they do? They made clothes out of fig leaves. Now, have you ever touched a fig leaf? They're kind of fuzzy and prickly, and we're just not going to go there, all right? Nobody ever said sin makes you smart, right? It kind of reminds—it's kind of a ridiculous picture of a way in which they're kind of hiding, you know. And it reminds me of this client of mine who had um, three bad little boys, and they decided one day to see what would happen if they took every egg in the carton of eggs and threw it up in the air and watched it splat on the kitchen floor, which they proceeded to do. Barrels of fun, right? Well, suddenly they realized, great, there's 12 eggs smashed on the floor— and, you know, I hear mom coming in the cool of the day. You know, it's like, uh-oh. So what they did was they took 12 little dish towels and, like, laid them down, you know, and each. To where she walks in, there's 12, like, damp towels. Like, yeah, good good, good try, guys, you know. Anyway, so if, I'm, if I was God and my rebellious people had hurt me like this, and I had loved them the way I had, and they had turned from me, and they're hiding now in this kind of pitiful way, my response would be to snatch those fig leaves off and go really (laughs) you have reaped a life of shame and you're going to be shamed for it no covering for you but what's god's response he sees they've destroyed the world he sees that they've hurt him he sees that they're hiding because of their shame and the loving father makes his children better clothes Genesis three twenty one uses God's covenant name. Yahweh made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Instead of exposing them to the full blast of the judgment they deserve, he's already saying, let me protect you. Let me cover you. You want to hide? Hide in me. What could be more comforting to hear? But i got to ask this question, where do you get the animal skins? Do we think about the fact that in order to cover Adam and Eve's shame, there already was shedding of blood in the Garden of Eden, someone had to die to cover them. I'm convicted by how easily and quickly I run back to God with my sin and say hey yeah god will you forgive me again you know you got a lot of that right i like sinning you like forgiving this is a good deal you know and i forget this cost that sits just behind the scenes that he covers his children but he covers his children with the blood of another that my shame is covered but somebody paid for that but he's still not finished loving us there's one more gift to go because you see there was another tree and there's this chilling moment to me in this story Genesis 3:22 God says essentially to himself behold the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil and now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever, dot, dot, dot. He doesn't even finish the sentence. It's almost like you realize that you don't know where your three-year-old is, and the back door is open, and the back door leads to the pool. You don't finish your sentence. You drop and run, you know? Next thing that's said is, so he drove the man out. At the e- and at the east of the, gar- uh, of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, what does this mean? Well, people speculate, but one commentator said this, and I like it, and I think it fits. And I'm going to need to stretch you a little on this, but play with me here. Think about it. What's our current status? We got broken relationship. The, the created order is destroyed. Man is separated from God. Adam and Eve are imprisoned now in a world away from their Lord. Where they're imprisoned in a world where, that Paul says groans, where sin is and isolates and destroys. And think about it the worst thing that could possibly happen right now would be for them somehow to take. And eat of the tree of life and live forever, condemned to always live forever in this world, separated from God. So, think about it. It's kind of a beautiful, strange, amazing gift as God realizes, oh my gosh, what if they ate of the tree of life? And He stops them, and He throws them out, and He puts cherubim there, guardian angels with flaming swords to keep them ever from taking and eating of the tree of life and living forever, forever separated from him here. In other words, our final gift, our final blessing is bizarre. God makes sure that we can die. He makes sure that though death is the ultimate enemy, that it can do its work and free us to be with him as intended, unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground. So we can't go back to Eden now. The Garden of Eden, the place where God was, is now sealed and protected by cherubim with flaming swords that will not let anyone in. But Eden is also protected by cherubim like cherubim we see somewhere else. In the Temple of Israel, the Holy of Holies was the most sacred chamber, and it's the place where God was. And it contained the altar and the ark and the law and even the holy presence of God himself. And even the high priest could only go in once a year on the day of atonement. Legend says, this isn't in the Bible, legend says when the high priest did go in, they would tie a rope around his ankle. So in case the glory of God like obliterated him, they could like pull him out without endangering anybody else. Which, like I say, it's not in the Bible, but it seems kind of like a cool image. But anyway. So, this place where God was, the Holy of Holies, was separated from the temple, the rest of the temple, by a barrier, a curtain, a great veil. It stood as a wall, a barrier between the people and the most holy place, a barrier to Eden, if you will, a barrier to the place where God is. And do you know what that veil looked like? It's actually described in Exodus 26. You know, it's one of those places you usually skip over when you're reading the Bible, where God's telling the artisans who decorated the temple how he wanted it done. Well, he goes into some detail about how he wants this veil done. You know what it looked like? It was about 40 feet high, and it was purple, and it had gold rings along the top of it. And it was embroidered with cherubim. And that's not a coincidence. God don't do coincidence. Cherubim are God's guardians. Cherubim are God's warrior angels. You don't get past them. He uses them when God wants to create a barrier. The cherubim are going to make sure it happens. Whether you're trying to get back into Eden, the place where God was, or into the Holy of Holies, the place where God was. We're excluded from his presence by angels you do not want to mess with. We've lost our access to God. But remember the story that I'm telling you. God comes to us and he looks for us and he calls our name and he puts hatred between us and Satan and he covers our shame and he promises a seed to save us. And my friends, that seed does come and he does battle with the serpent and he is bruised and he is nailed to a cross without covering but he crushes the serpent's head. And what happens when he does that? That veil of cherubim rips from top to bottom, and the guardians are gone, and the barrier is gone. And do you know who now stands as gatekeeper to the presence of God? The seed himself. Now Christ stands in the doorway to the gateway to the presence of God, and he says, I am the way and the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. He has paid our debt for the sin of Eden, and not only does he not keep us out, he goes out, and he finds us, and he brings us home. This is who he is. If you do not know him here, this is who he is. He is wild, and he is alive, and he wants you. And to those of us who are believers, I I think I'll take it back. I do have application to the sermon. (laughs) The application is you need to leave here today knowing that he wants you that badly. Why? I don't know. But this story in in Genesis is just a, a foretaste of what he is willing to do to have us back. How could we not more want to be like him? And how could we not more want to serve him better? Let's pray. We are silenced by the power and the mercy and the action of our God. We are silenced by your mercy. We're silenced by your love. In this brief silence, we worship you. We worship you. We can be here and pray to you like this because of the seed himself, in whose name we pray. Amen.